This episode is brought to you by ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. Enter ServiceNow. It puts AI to work for people, for employees, for developers, and even your customers, removing frustration and supercharging productivity. On our intelligent platform, AI isn't just a promise. It's happening today. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Tap the banner to learn more or visit servicenow.com slash AI for people. One day in February 2017, Wall Street Journal reporter Greg Zuckerman got an email. He emailed me, I'm ready to take action. Enough is enough. What did you think when you got an email that said, I'm ready to take action? I was kind of shocked. I was eager to hear what he has to say and whether he really would open up. The email was from David Magerman, an executive at the most reclusive and most lucrative hedge fund in the world, Renaissance Technologies. These people are the most secretive traders Wall Street has ever seen. They signed these 30-page non-disclosure agreements. I was reluctant to believe that the guy would criticize his own boss in the Wall Street Journal. David Magerman was emailing Greg to spill the details about tension that was dividing the firm. And he was writing to complain about one guy in particular, the co-CEO of Renaissance and a far-right mega-donor, Robert Mercer. Eventually, in the fallout of this email, Magerman would be fired. And Mercer would be forced to step down from his leadership role. At the center of this fight at Renaissance Technologies was wealth, power, and the rise of Donald Trump. On the next two episodes of The Journal, we're going to tell you the story of how an unlikely group of academics built Renaissance and how this battle inside the firm spilled out onto the pages of The Wall Street Journal. Welcome to The Journal. I'm Ryan Knudsen. It's Monday, November 25th. The story begins in 1978, almost 40 years before that email from David Magerman ended up in Greg's inbox. That year, a mathematician named Jim Simons decided to leave his prestigious academic career to test a wild theory he had about the financial markets, that they could be basically solved with math equations. Simons was 40 years old at the time. He taught math at Harvard and MIT and was leading the math department at Stony Brook University in Long Island. Simons almost never talks to the press about this or really any period of his life. But Greg convinced him to sit down for about 10 hours of interviews, and he conducted hundreds of other interviews with dozens of Simons' friends, family, and colleagues, including from around the time he decided to leave academia. And that decision made very little sense to people around him at the time. So he tells his family and his friends and his colleagues at Stony Brook, hey, I'm going to go start a hedge fund and try to use math to beat the market. And what do they say to him? To his face, they were somewhat encouraging. But behind his back, they mocked him. Colleagues doubted he could succeed. And also, these are mathematicians. So many of them don't really care so much about getting rich. And it's almost beneath them to trade for a living when there's so many problems out there, important problems that haven't been solved yet. 
And yet here he was spending his time doing something unintellectual, not quite as challenging in their view. But Simons had a vision, and he did see the markets as an intellectual matter. In fact, he saw the market as one giant math problem. And he said, you know what? I'm going to go start my own firm, my own trading firm, and try to develop a new approach, a new way of making money in the market. He had a vision of using math to solve the market. And frankly, it was quite radical at the time. You could really see him as a pioneer in terms of embracing big data. The more data you have, the better your predictions are liable to be. Back then, you have to remember, no one really cared about data. Talking about late 70s, early 80s, it was all about using your instinct, using your judgment, talking to management, looking at balance sheets, looking at annual reports. Simons didn't do any of that kind of stuff. What Simons would do is collect data in every way possible. Everything from just opening up the newspaper and jotting everything down and digging up information that went back literally hundreds of years to the 1700s of places like the Federal Reserve. He was looking for patterns in the market. And he figured that he could use mathematical models to predict where the market was going. Even though he knew pretty much nothing about the stock market or even business for that matter. I think it helped that he actually didn't know anything. In other words, you and I might have said, well, geez, people have tried and failed time and time again to come up with a new method to solve the market. Who's to say this guy has a shot at it? And if he had an awareness of the history of investing and business, maybe he would have shied away, but he didn't. Instead, he set up shop. The first location for what would eventually become Renaissance Technologies wasn't exactly what you'd think of when you hear hedge fund. He went from the prestige of a big university and the head of the department to a little strip mall across from the train station, spotty phone service, peeling wallpaper on the walls, two doors down from a pizza store. And he seemed like the last person to be the one who might be able to solve the market. Simons' first order of business was recruiting people to help him. He wanted to hire other academics like him, people who were passionate about math, not just making money. But to lure people like that, he had to get creative. He realized that telling them, oh, you can make a lot of money here, wasn't going to get them to come by the office and check it out. What he did was set up a challenge, and Simons presented it as an intellectual challenge. And what, what he tried to do is bring them in just once a week. Simons framed the work the way he'd always thought of it, as a series of math problems. So he'd get in touch with the professors he most wanted to work with, and he'd ask for their help on a specific math problem related to the markets. And it worked. It got them in the door. Even people that weeks earlier couldn't have cared less about investing in Wall Street and where the Dow was going, once they were there, they couldn't get enough of it. And the market will do that to you. What is it that's so alluring to people about this challenge of the market? How can they go from not caring about it to suddenly thinking it's the most interesting challenge they've ever faced? I think part of it is the immediacy of the challenge and the report card you get on a daily basis. And some of the mathematicians I've talked to said you don't get that in that world, in the world of academia, where it could be years and years before you publish a paper. 
in the market, every day you are being judged for good and for bad. They were drawn to it. And you'd be surprised, even within weeks, they had transformed from academics who didn't care about the market to those so passionate about it, they thought about it night and day. Within a year, Simons had successfully recruited a group of top math professors to join him at his strip mall hedge fund. He'd also cobbled together their first investments from friends and family. Little by little, the team made progress on investing money based on big data and computer models. In the early days, they focused on making their model work for stuff like commodities trading. But the pitfalls of relying solely on computer predictions to invest millions of dollars soon became clear, specifically in a debacle involving potatoes that plagued the firm in 1979. One day... Jim Simons got a call from a regulator, a commodity regulator, saying, uh, Jim, do you realize that you and your colleagues have cornered the market on Maine potatoes? Cornered the market on Maine potatoes, meaning that they had basically bought up everything to the extent that they could then control the price. Potentially, potentially. right. Or enough of the market so that it scared regulators that mm-hmm. one individual held so many potato contracts. And, you know, it was kind of humorous to people within the firm. Simons kind of laughed about it. He thought the regulators would, too, because he hadn't intentionally cornered the market on Maine potatoes. But they failed to see the humor and the escapade, and they forced Simons to get rid of them right away, and it cost them millions of dollars. You could really see it as an early version of machine learning, where the model was teaching itself what to buy and what to sell, but they didn't know why their model was buying and selling what it was. The potato incident didn't deter Simons or his colleagues, and they spent the next decade tinkering with their model. By the early 90s, Renaissance was considered to be a moderate success by Wall Street standards. But that wasn't good enough for Jim Simons. He ran a firm that managed about $800 million And he was getting wealthy, but they only traded things like commodities and bond futures and currencies, and they couldn't figure out the stock market. And you and I might have said, okay, that's fine. They're still pretty wealthy guys, and that's enough for them. And it was enough for most people at the firm, but it wasn't enough for Jim Simons. Simons knew the key to making it big on Wall Street was figuring out how to invest in stocks. The stock market was just so much bigger than the commodities and bond markets he'd been investing in until now. And he knew that using big data to make stock market predictions was much more complicated. By that point, Simons could have easily brought on people with traditional Wall Street backgrounds. But instead, he found two computer scientists from IBM who knew almost nothing about stocks. One of those men was Bob Mercer. Bob Mercer and Peter Brown couldn't have cared less about the stock market, probably never thought about investing either. But they each ran into some frustrations and difficulties within IBM. Once again, Simons is able to say, come on over to my firm. I know you don't care about investing and trading. It's maybe beneath you, but take a look at what we're working on over here. What had Brown and Mercer been working on at IBM? They were doing speech, and they were doing speech translation, predictive aspects of that. Um, And believe it or not, There's some similarities with the market when it comes to speech in in that you're trying to predict what comes next. Mm -hmm. And you wouldn't think anything to do with the market, but in some ways, they both look chaotic, they look unexpected, and they look unpredictable. What will the next person say next? But you can actually mathematically determine, or at least predict it to some extent. 
From his earliest days at Renaissance, it was clear that Mercer was a brilliant computer scientist who would be invaluable to the firm. But it was also clear that he had some particular habits. So Bob Mercer is an unusual uh, individual. Even people that, you know, had spent years working with him had great respect for him, his intellect, his abilities. But they also couldn't quite figure this guy out. So unusually gifted guy, but he could be odd. He hummed all day, whistled to himself, usually classical tunes. So he, he was kind of seen as sort of amusing. Every day for lunch, for example, he always ate either tuna fish or peanut butter and jelly wrapped in this used brown paper bag. And he would then, after finishing lunch, he would open up a bag of potato chips, lay them all out, eat the broken ones first, and then the largest to the smallest. And when it came to politics, Mercer liked to provoke his colleagues, usually in the lunchroom. He'd start looking around at the table and who's there, and invariably there was someone more liberal than he, and he would start picking on him and, and getting under his skin and trying to start a little bit of a political debate. What are some examples his colleagues told you about? Among the radical um, views he started expressing around the office was that minorities did better before the Civil Rights Act. Or he would bring up some topic, Bill Clinton, shouldn't he be in prison? Sometimes it was things like evolution. He wasn't necessarily a religious person, but he kind of said, well, there isn't enough time yet to judge evolution's accuracy. And he knew he was getting under people's skin, but I think he enjoyed riling people up and leaving them wondering about him. And, you know, he's a scientist, so the fascinating thing is he sort of demanded robust arguments when it came to work. But outside of work, often it was sort of flimsy data he was relying on, and he would send his colleagues off to find these papers, and they'd come back and say, hey, hey, Bobby, this isn't a real academic. There's no scientific basis for what you're saying here. And he would sort of smile and kind of chuckle and go on whistling to himself. Mercer's lunchroom provocations might have been moderately annoying to his colleagues, but he more than made up for it through his work. A couple years after Mercer joined Renaissance, he and a colleague had built a beautiful computer model for that next-level goal of trading stocks. Simons was thrilled. They were finally getting the breakthrough he'd been waiting for. But there was a problem. The model seemed perfect on paper. But when it was implemented, it didn't work. It wasn't making money. And it would take someone other than Bob Mercer to figure out what was going wrong. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash journal. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by Canva. It's time to ditch your old presentation programs at work and try Canva presentations instead. It'll help you create stunning slides in no time. No design experience needed. 
Just start with one of the designer-made templates or generate something in seconds with AI. Then polish it up and get ready to wow your audience. It's that easy. Nail your next work presentation with Canva presentations at canva.com. Design for work. Tap the banner to learn more. Welcome back. Mercer and his colleagues had built a model to trade stocks, which they thought should have worked, but it didn't. And late one night in the office, the fix came from an unexpected place. Well, it took a more junior programmer who was hired also from IBM named uh, David Magerman. Magerman was actually hired by Bob Mercer, and they had a quite close relationship early on, almost father figure. This is the same man who, 20 years later, would email Greg complaining about Mercer. But at this point, Magerman told Greg he looked up to Mercer, and the two were close. Magerman didn't know anybody, didn't have any friends in the area, and he stayed and lived with Bob Mercer and his family. They would take him out, go to Friendly's for ice cream. But Magerman had made a few mistakes after joining the firm. Wasn't clear if they wanted to keep him around. He was worried about his career. And he stayed up late at night trying to figure out why they still couldn't make money, why their model on paper looked like it should be off to the races and generating all kinds of profits, and yet wasn't. And he stumbled onto something. The mistake they had made, it turns out, was that one of the figures, one of the inputs in their model was a static number for the Standard & Poor's 500. And it should have been static. It should have been updating. And basically, their model wasn't giving them the proper recommendations because the number wasn't being updated. The S&P 500 figure wasn't being updated. And Magerman thought, you know, I think this is the problem. These are some of the top mathematicians and scientists in the world working on this problem. And it was a basic programming mistake that was made, believe it or not, by Bob Mercer. So the problem was just this one number that was static that was supposed to be updating automatically? Yeah, So what did Magerman say he did when he discovered this bug? He went one late night to Mercer and said, "Uh, boss, uh, I think I see the problem here. I think it's that this number isn't updating. This S&P 500 number isn't updating. And to his credit, Mercer right away said, you know what? You're right. And we have to update this number. It has to be a number that continuously updates. And at that point, frankly, it all kicked in. Mercer and Brown, along with that final assist from Magerman, had fulfilled Jim Simons' vision. The stock trading model they built paved the way for massive profits. This is really the turning point in the whole story because until then, they were a reasonably successful firm, and now they start making money hand over fist. They make money like no one's made money in the history of finance. So just to give some context, in the mid-'90s, they were making... $66 $66 million a year. They got up to about $250 million a year in 1994 and leveled off there in the 200s. By the late 90s, they were making close to a billion dollars a year. And then in 2000, they made $2.4 billion in a single year. And it's important to remember, at that point, there were 100 people, even fewer, at the firm. We're not talking about a huge trading firm making $2.5 billion of pure profit. People on Wall Street cannot figure out how they're doing it is as if they solved the market. Solving the market made everyone at the firm incredibly wealthy in just a few short years. And that once ragtag group of mathematicians and scientists told Greg they had turned into something that looked much more like a stereotypical firm on Wall Street. 
there's a fascinating change that takes place within the firm. This is a group of academics. They're people that didn't really care about money for many years. And then they join the firm really just to see if they could pull off and solve the unsolvable. And they succeed. And it changes everybody. It changes the firm. It changes the culture. For a long time, no one really checked the performance on a regular basis of the fund. And then suddenly they started really focusing on it and people couldn't stop staring at their screens and seeing the money they were making and figuring out what they were going to do with it. And it was a cultural, a dramatic cultural shift internally. I mean, you look at the, the parking lot of the firm in the late 90s and it's a bunch of beat up cars, Corollas, and you see a change. You see people starting to spend money, see nicer cars. You see people paying for helicopters to take them to Manhattan for dinner. They were buying mansions all over Long Island. They became known as the people buying the biggest homes all across the area. And you see, even these academics embrace the money. But not everyone at Renaissance felt so comfortable embracing their new fortunes. Others within the firm had real moral qualms about what they were doing and about all the money that was piling up. Only at a firm like this are you going to have these kind of concerns and, and questions. They were doing nothing illegal, nothing improper. They were trading the market for themselves. And some would say, good for them. They made a lot of money. But some of them struggled with the fact that they were making so much money because they were saying, well, are we draining too much talent from other areas of math and science? Are we contributing to society? And quite frankly, they were pretty wealthy at that point. So they went from wealthy to really, really rich and made some people uncomfortable. Regardless of where each employee fell on the ethics of the whole thing, there was one certainty. As employees began accumulating extraordinary wealth, they were also accumulating extraordinary power. And that meant that opinions like the ones Bob Mercer used to needle his colleagues with in the cafeteria suddenly became a lot more consequential. One thing that's for sure is when you make so much money, you can have an impact, not just within your firm, but elsewhere. And that's exactly what happened. These individuals started making so much money that they started to have impact and influence and that they started to wield outside of the firm in broader society. And the impact of that money really was felt by you and I in all kinds of different ways. On the next episode of The Journal, what happens when Mercer starts spending his billions to support the change he wants to see in the world, and how Mercer's political donations tore apart his relationship with his former protege and threatened to bring down all of Renaissance in the process. The story in these episodes is based on Greg Zuckerman's new book about Jim Simons and Renaissance technologies called The Man Who Solved the Market. You can buy it wherever books are sold. That's all for today, Monday, November 25th. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. We'll see you tomorrow afternoon.